Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. Coming to you from the same place as Wanda today, I'm Navia. And coming to you from someplace entirely different, I'm Ashani. This is episode six, One Does Not Simply Wheel a Barrow. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get right to it. In these chapters, the hobbits leave Tom Bombadil, get kidnapped and almost murdered by a Barrow White, reunite with Tom Bombadil, and then make it to the Prancing Pony in Bree, where after some drunken shenanigans, Frodo almost gets exposed by going invisible, and they encounter Strider. So, all right, I think the takeaway from these chapters is that they're actually really hard to summarize because it doesn't feel like a whole lot happens. Which is weird because a lot happens. Yeah, event-wise, like, plenty of things happen, but none of it feels important somehow. I think because none of it is particularly important other than the hobbits reach Bree and meet Strider. (laughs) Sorry, I just started reading Wanda's note, and it just says these descriptions are not good. <laughs> I like. I really. I really came to the end of my rope with this chapter because because the descriptions of like as the, so as the hobbits in chapter in the in chapter eight they leave the old forest and they get down onto the barrows the barrow downs. So Barrow Downs being um, not, as Navia apparently thought, a collection of wheelbarrows. Look, I looked Uh, up what barrows were, and it just said wheelbarrows. Where did you look it up, though? On, like, Urban Dictionary? No, I mean, so, like, I read on Kindle, and Kindle has a feature where if you highlight the word, it gives you, like, the dictionary definition. So I just did that, and it was like, wheelbarrows. And the moment that I chose to highlight it was like, it was talking about how Frodo had been put into a barrow, and I was like, oh, okay, so he's put into a wheelbarrow. This kind of... What did you think a barrow white was? A a dude who, like, rolls the wheelbarrow. I don't know. Wait, this is... This is... That's so cool, actually. I I, I was just trying to figure out, like, a second ago, like, what it would have been like to read this chapter, imagining that... I just it was picturing these like rolling hills with these dudes just like trundling along wheelbarrows. So like an equivalent of like a white walker, but like behind a wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah. I mean in retrospect, fine, it was stupid, but No, it's not stupid. It's not it, it, I mean I mean you made sense of it with the information you had. And I, also, yeah. I feel like that just makes for a wildly less intimidating reading of what happens in chapter eight. I was, okay, so <laughs> I didn't imagine the Barrow Whites just like constantly trundling wheelbarrows along. It was more like they had wheelbarrows and like when some prey like these hobbits came along, like they they would shove them in there. I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> Tell us what barrows are, Shani. Well, a barrow's like a grave. It's like it's like a it's like someone is someone is buried, and then a rather than them being buried under the ground, they're they're buried on top of the ground, and then a hill is is made over their grave, right? 
That's the impression yeah. that I got. Yeah, it's it's an old school burial mound. Yeah. So when Frodo is put into a barrow, he's like been buried alive. He is like it's like there's a tomb. So there's these actually appear in the movies. Remember Simbelmuna? Remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when they carry uh, when they carry Theoden's son into his grave, they carry him into that. Oh, into, there's a little door. Right. Yeah. There's a little door. Yeah, it's a hobbit hole for dead people. <laughs> um, bury me, bury me in the house the likes of which I lived in in life. <laughs> um, so there's so. Uh, so there, anyway, so, so when I said these descriptions are not good, it was because as they descend into the Barrow Downs and they're walking across the landscape, I actually had a really hard time figuring out where they were. So it wasn't like, it it wasn't serving like any kind of utilitarian function for me. Like I wasn't able to get a sense of, I wasn't able to like put myself in their coordinates. And it also was not like, it, it, it was just like, it was clunky. I didn't feel... I didn't feel like it was it was serving any poetic purpose either. Did you guys feel this way? I definitely felt that way about like the description of when they're walking to wherever the Barrow Downs are because I was like it felt extremely repetitive with the descriptions we had been reading thus far of the old forest and I was just like great more walking. Like <laughs> I think I got it. <laughs> and it was just more description of of the geography and the layout of this land and I was like yeah. I don't really care, you know, about it anymore in this sense where Yeah. Um yeah, I got it. Like we're in this place. Um, but, but I did really enjoy the descriptions of like, once they're in the fog and of like Frodo getting lost and separated from the others. Cause like that felt super ominous and like his description of, of like being separated and then going towards this voice that he's hearing and, but not being like, it was very claustrophobic feeling to read. Yeah. And I, I, I really liked the, the depiction of the fog itself. Yeah. When he's running and he realizes that he's running uphill. Yeah. Um, to not really have a sense of where you're going and just relying entirely on like the, um, where gravity is pulling you. It was really scary. Yeah. I feel like where this chapter, uh, chapter eight in particular, where that kind of failed for me was in the sense of not really understanding which elements were meant to serve the overall story and which ones weren't. And there was a part of me that liked that. There was a part of me that liked that Tolkien's world building is so expansive that there's clearly things that exist outside the realm of what is directly impacting and influencing the Hobbits and the main plot of the books. And at the same time, it's like... You know, you get stuck in some of these things and you're trying to sort through all of this information that's coming at you. And if you have no idea or no indicator of what parts are relevant or what parts you're going to need to remember later on, it's really hard to keep all of it in your head. Yeah, it feels like we're we're reading with like a little bit of uh, unfair advantage because we actually know that this isn't important, you know, so... It's, it's almost like it's extra unimportant to us because we kind of know that it's not going to come up again. But I, I do, I wish I could go back and like read this chapter for the first time ever, not knowing anything that happened and be mm-hmm. like really scared yeah. for these characters. Yeah. But it was just kind of like, one, I know they're going to get out of it. Two, I know that these Barrow Whites just like are never going to make an appearance again. Yeah. Yeah. But there was something. Okay. So in the escape from 
the Barrow Whites, before Tom Bombadil reappears to save the Hobbits. There's a moment where the Barrow White is coming towards them to kill Merry and Pippin and Sam, and Frodo starts glowing? Did y'all catch that? Yes, he begins to, like, there's like a green light. Yeah, it's it's like it's well, it's not like he's glowing. It's like his whole, his his like aura, his his whole like yeah. It's like he he and the ground and the ceiling of the barrow are all glowing, right? I think it specifically says that it's coming from him. I didn't catch the glow, but I did think that this moment was like Frodo for the first time was really brave. And I was kind of wondering if it was, like, he was almost emanating that courage, you know? Let me see if I can... Yeah, I think I'm trying to find this, too. Here we go. As Frodo lay there, thinking and getting a hold of himself, he noticed all at once that the darkness was slowly giving way. A pale, greenish light was growing around him. It did not first show him what kind of a place he was in, for the light seemed to be coming out of himself and from the floor beside him and had not yet reached the roof or wall. Wait, so Frodo doesn't have Sting yet, right? He gets it later. Yeah. So it can't be coming from Sting. Right. Yeah. And it's in this glow that he sees Sam, Mary, and Pippin lying beside him. Interesting. It's the glow of the Matrix. (laughs) This was the part where I went, like, Chekhov's gun is buried amongst all of the other crap that Chekhov has apparently kept in a barrow for a thousand years, right? Like, <laughs> what is what is relevant here? What are we supposed to take away from that? And honestly, like, I know you'd mentioned dreams uh, last episode as your quickfire topic, Navia, but that was one of the things where the dreams kind of feel the same way, where some of the dreams are clearly relevant, And then some of the dreams are so vague or even with our foreknowledge of what's going to happen, I'm sitting there going, I have no idea what this is meant to be telling me or what information this is supposed to be providing. Yeah, it almost it feels like it's a it's a device that I'm very familiar with in other stories of just like this dream is foreshadowing somehow. And in this, I can't figure out what the hell some of these dreams are foreshadowing. And I'm like. I don't know if this is a successful device here. Right. And it's not even that I don't think dreams can't serve multiple purposes. There were a lot of negatives in that sentence. Um, I think it's totally fine if Tolkien wants to have some dreams that are foreshadowing or even, you know, some elements of magic that are not fully explained. But it's really hard when they're coming so frequently again, to sort of sort through and figure out what I need to be remembering and what I need to be invested in and what I should be caring about versus what's the thing that just got included because he thought it was cool. It kind of reminded me of this play that I wrote in high school where, like, I inserted a dream sequence scene and, like, it was just a bizarre scene. And I I was just very pretentious and I was like, I don't know, what does it all mean? And it was a totally meaningless scene in reality and I wasn't really trying to say anything deep with it. <laughs> it just like I thought it was deep to have a dream sequence. Yeah. I I kind of wonder if Tolkien has fallen into that trap a little bit. Well, but no, I mean that's like that that's I feel like we can't just leave it there, right? Uh just like assuming that because we don't really know what this is the what what the um 
what the what the meaning or the function of the dreams are that there is no function or meaning right i mean especially because if you if you know something about like the uh the undying lands right or the the world of middle earth at large you can tell that in dreams frodo is accessing some of those parts of the world right like it seems like in the dream that he awakes from at the beginning of the eighth chapter and a couple of dreams before then He's dreaming about the Grey Havens, right? Yeah. Maybe? Maybe. I don't know. Like, what specific things do you get that from? Well, so there's one So there's one dream that he has. Um, I think it's before they set out to go to the Old Forest. And, um, and he's on, like, a tundra. Stop me if you guys know what I'm talking about. He's, uh, Frodo is... He dreams that he's on a tundra type situation mm. um, and he looks out and he can finally see the sea which he's heard about before but he's never actually seen. Oh yeah okay I remember this. Dream. Yeah and then there's this big light yeah. that comes up in the distance and he sees the light but then everything's obscured by the sound of thunder so that seems to me to be like a like a like a Grey Havens reference mingled with uh, like sort of a, an ominous foretelling that um everything good and eternal in the world was at, at, at risk because of the encroaching presence of Sauron. It does kind of interest me in... I had forgotten about these dreams entirely, and um, it now I'm kind of interested in whether this theme actually continues through all the books and we continue to see yeah. Frodo's dreams, because I think that will be interesting as we see how they change. Yeah. I, I honestly don't remember if we continue to get them or not. Yeah, especially in the sort of later books when it, we get an entire sort of book as Tolkien uses it that's just Frodo oh, and Sam no. and Gollum. I'm dreading it so much. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm i going to be really interested to see if those kinds of moments show up as Frodo gets closer to the mountain and as he gets sort of more influenced by the ring whether the content and frequency of his dreams is going to change at all. Yeah, well, I think we'll just have to keep an eye on it. I mean, I feel like we aren't able to interpret the dreams we've seen yet, so maybe we just have to keep looking out for them. Yeah. Although, you know, part of the frustration, part of the frustration I think I'm, the reason why I'm sitting here going, but what does it mean? And like wanting to shake the book until answers fall out is that there are times when it's really clear what is being referenced. And I feel like there's a moment at the end of chapter eight where we all went, oh, obviously Tom Bombadil is talking about the Rangers and he's talking about Aragorn. And like, sure enough, guess who shows up in the next chapter? Right, so there's these moments of very clear sort of foreshadowing or indicator, and then immediately afterwards, although, to be fair, a reader who is reading it for the first time would not know that Strider is the person who is being referenced at the end of Chapter 8. But Even if they did know that, like, Strider is going to appear and he's a ranger, I the description that Tom Bombadil gives of the rangers is vague enough. I mean, he basically refers to them as, like, these old kings of westerness, that unless you are, like, familiar with this with this lore and this world, I don't think you would pick up on that. Can you get, can, like, one of you guys give me a refresher on what 
uh, on what he says about the Rangers, like what exactly he says. Yeah, he basically says um, that. So he makes a reference to what I think is the Witch King of Angmar. It's the swords he gives them. When Tom Bombadil references the rangers, he gives the hobbits four daggers from this mound of treasure that the Barrow White had accumulated. Yeah. And he says, well, these blades were forged many years ago by men who were foes of the Dark Lord, but they were overcome by the evil king of Cairn Doom in the land of Angmar, which, as Navia, you suspect, is probably a reference to the Witch King. And then what he says is, few now remember these men, but there are some of their descendants who are still sort of wandering around guarding people from the things that go bump in the night. Um, And then the hobbits have a vision of the rangers and they have a vision of, quote unquote, one with a star on his brow. Right, because the... um, Because the... uh... Tom Tom's stories are able to conjure up hallucinations. Yeah. So yes. just a little bit of like lore background here for who the Rangers are, aside from this description. Okay. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but basically the Rangers are these, you know, these old kings who they there was this kingdom of, of Westerness that um that they ruled over and Yeah, what is Westerness? It it was an old kingdom that actually fell. Um, but this kingdom basically was like the best place ever and they got on so well with um, with basically like the gods of this world who are the the Valar um, that they granted them kind of longer life and so the the descendants of these kings continue to have that like that blessing of long life which is why the rangers just like live way longer and um, the rangers are basically all the descendants of this kingdom, even like who are still alive after the kingdom fell to. I think it fell to the witch king. Yeah. Um, when Sauron started. Well, that's certainly the implication. Yeah, I'm gonna check myself because I don't fully remember which period it fell in. Okay. But um, basically, the kingdom fell, <laughs> and yeah. and these are the surviving like descendants, and so they all live longer, and they have like kind of some special abilities. Um, and they roam as these rangers, or Dunedain is what they call themselves. Right. So the so the men of Westerness are the ones who are beaten in this fight with the Witch King of Angmar, otherwise known as the King of Dune. Right? Yeah. And we think. Um, so the Barrow Whites uh, are not the, the uh, zombies of the men of Westerness. They are other people, right? So I got the impression that the Barrow Whites... And maybe I just completely made this up, but for some reason I thought that the Barrow Whites were basically the original uh, population of Angmar, yes. the like dark place. Yes. And so they basically, once they defeated the men of Westerness, they took all their stuff. Right. Yeah. That's the impression that I got, but... Well, I think it's implied in like the last chapter that we read, in, back when they were in talking to Tom Bombadil in the Old Forest, that the men who become the Barrow Whites are uh, soldiers who are killed, and at first they're just dead, and then the spirit of Sauron makes its way um, back into their back into their bodies and sort of reanimates them. I think it's one of those pieces of lore that is implied but never explicitly stated and so i think that's as good an explanation as any we're going to come up with because 
I don't think there's a a, a right answer in the text. Well, no, but Tom Bombadil literally says this. I think he I think he says as like the spirit of the Dark Lord, um, or or as as um, as certain like dark things began to come in from Mordor, the the dead men in the barrows rose again and became whites. I don't remember that, but I I trust you. Can we like spend like a little bit more time on this? I think this is actually I think this is like actually the most interesting thing about these chapters now is that we get this history, we get this old history of Westerness, um, and um, and we sort of pick up some of the artifacts of this this battle that occurred a long long time ago between the men of Westerness and the men of Cardoon, and then. Um, in the next chapter, we're introduced to one of the descendants of, um, of these men, right? And it's actually kind of, it's, it's kind of lovely that these things happen in such quick succession. Um, I didn't, I don't think I, I don't think I would have known before talking to you guys that that was, that that is sort of intentional, that he provides this foreshadowing, um, and then you meet Strider, uh, and it's these, it's sort of like the, the two chapters sort of like rhyme, Without you knowing it at first. Yeah, I do think there is something to be said for the the echoes of history as they play out through these books. And you're right that I think this is a... I hesitate to say a good example of that because I think I still kind of get stuck on... Is there a cleaner way to do that? Or is there a cleaner way to maybe introduce these ideas that doesn't sort of involve the slog? Because these chapters, not that reading them was difficult, but in the sense of after I was done reading them, I kind of went, well, that didn't need to be the number of pages that it was. And it could have still accomplished some of the same things, but maybe not, you know, maybe in thinking about the fact that these echoes aren't meant to be totally readily apparent, because if you were reading this for the first time, you wouldn't know any of that. Like any of the stuff we just talked about for the last five minutes are there things that you would only know if you've read the books before and or been on the wiki. Yeah, honestly, even if you have read the books before and are familiar with this, like, if you've just read these books, you wouldn't know any of this. I think a lot of this background comes from the Silmarillion and the appendices and, like, the, basically the the rest of the lore around Middle-earth. I don't think we ever get, at least as far as I recall, I don't think we get a full explanation of, like, who the rangers are, their relation to the... The, these kings of old who, by the way, I should have... The word I w- that I was looking for earlier was the Numenorians, their descendants of yeah. of Numenor. Um, and they were the men of Westerness. Yeah. Um, so, I, like, it feels almost more like an Easter egg here mm. for people who do the the extra work of finding out and actually do all the of this reading. stuff. Yeah. And less like intention, or it feels less like a foreshadowing that's intended to draw parody with the next chapter because you just you wouldn't know. Yeah. Well, I thought like I mean, 
all this aside, like I, I thought that there was, you know, what what stood out to me in in this chapter where they encounter the Barrow Whites is that Tom Bombadil comes to save them. Oh, and why? Why is Tom Bombadil still here? <laughs> I, like I didn't <laughs> no, expect I think that, this character to annoy me as much as he does. <laughs> I felt like it, it it gave me some more questions about him because he's sort of introduced as like a um, as an extremely powerful character in the previous chapters, and then. Uh, he sort of gets to spend some of his strength points <laughs> in this chapter when they when they call on him to help them out, um, yeah. and it and it gave me some more questions like what exactly are the bounds of his domain? How far can he go? Yeah, it did feel like we got a very straightforward answer to why he isn't involved in the rest of this quest and the rest of Middle Earth, which is just like he doesn't leave this forest, basically, right? Like this yeah. is his domain. And he doesn't go beyond it. He says at a certain point, is it when they get to the road that he's like, I just don't go further than here. Yeah. This is not my zone. Although it wasn't clear whether or not it was because he can't or won't. And I definitely got a sense of like, he chooses not to go further. It did give me a sense of kind of like the limits of his power, though, because when when initially they summon him, right, they summon him by Frodo basically singing a song to summon him. Um, which kind of goes back to the power of music again. And when I read that, I was just kind of like, why are why do they not just use this all the time, right? Why don't they just summon right. Tom Bombadil whenever they're in any kind of trouble and he'll just get <laughs> them out of it? And then as I finished the chapter, it kind of became clear that I think the song only works like when they're still in his realm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's definitely a sense that once they're past the bound of the forest, even if they sang he wouldn't necessarily hear them and even if he heard them he definitely wouldn't answer but when he when they do sing for him he comes right away yeah he just up and shows up (laughs) like re-raising further questions about whether tom has is actually bound by a corporeal form or merely shows up in one yeah i mean literally like frodo sings and then like two seconds later tom is there he can fold space (laughs) His reappearance in this chapter, I think, like, again, put me on edge because he's just such a weird character. Yeah. And I think the thing that's, that puts me on edge about him is, like, he's super cheerful and positive, but it feels in a, like, very inauthentic way somehow, where mm. he's just, like, like, the hobbits are cheerful, too, but it feels yeah. like their cheerfulness is, like, real. And his it just feels like this bizarre, like... Well, because he does, he's always cheerful. Right. Like, right? he doesn't... He doesn't even... He, it's like he's, like, trying to act human, but doesn't really know how. Oh, I like that read. That, like, that... That, <laughs> <laughs> that Tom is, like, a supernatural being. Um, yeah. And he's like, all right, to appear human, I'm going to choose the name of Tom. <laughs> 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 and I'm going to speak in rhyme. <laughs> People wear blue. I will wear a blue coat. <laughs> I will have a wife. <laughs> yeah. Is there any is there any period in human history in which Tom Bombadil would have just blended in? Maybe in like train spotting. You know what he actually reminds me of though? He reminds me of the Time Lords from Doctor Who. <laughs> like that's the vibe. Yeah, a little, right? I get that. I get that, yeah. Of just this like something is slightly off. And you're not entirely sure what. And he's wandering around and he's dressed a little funny and he makes jokes that don't entirely make sense. And he's objectively doing good things, right? Like he's saving right. them and helping them and like 
nothing he's doing is evil, <laughs> but, but you're just kind of like, you're Duh. not totally convinced that he's a good person. It's almost like you feel uneasy about the amount of power that he has more than like what he is using it for. You guys mind if we, if we just like stop for a second, I actually do want to pull up this thread that was on Twitter that I sent you guys. Someone says, I'd have a beer with this guy, but his chapter is still boring. <laughs> There's a long conversation in this thread where people talk about who they would cast as Tom Bombadil. Seems to be that the consensus is Robin Williams, which is really weird to me. Okay. Robin Williams has chaos energy, but I don't think he has, like, unsettling chaos energy. Now I'm thinking of who I would cast. You know, if you had to go for, like, a 90s comedian, Jim Carrey might be a little more unsettling. Jim oh, no. Carrey. I hate the thought of Jim Carrey in Lord Jim. of the Rings so much. Jim Carrey. I know, and that's why it's perfect, because I feel like any casting for Tom Bombadil, you should kind of hate. It should make you deeply uncomfortable and also say the thanks, I hate it. With Kate Winslet as Goldberry. <laughs> you know? It might work. It would be awful, but it might work. I feel like Tom Bombadil, his whole energy is the same as the energy of like the Pharrell song, Happy, where I'm just like, I don't like this. <laughs> That's so funny. You're like, not, yeah, I, I, have like a, I have like a few friends that hate Pharrell's song, Happy, because they're, they're all like unsettled by the idea of just this like stasis of happiness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, is Tom Bombadil in the animated version? I don't know. Wait, we should look that up on YouTube right now. Hang on. Uh, the answer is... No... Oh, yes! The Ralph Bakshi version included Tom Bombadil, who rescues the hobbits from the Barrow Downs. Should we watch it? Wait, John Hurt is Aragorn in this? <laughs> Whoa, sick. That's the, that's the daddy John Hurt I've always wanted. <laughs> I mean, we might have to watch this. I want just an image of what Tom Bombadil looks like. Oh my god. Wait, this is Boromir, and he wears short shorts. <laughs> he looks like Brian Blessed. Yeah, he had a <laughs> We have to watch this. We have to do an episode on watching this. Yeah, the, the, I, okay, I'm so glad that... So I also think that we should play the video game in which Tom Bombadil is apparently a character. The Lego video game or some other video game? Because there's a fair number of Lord of the Rings video games. We should play all of them. Do any of us have video game consoles? No, a lot of them are PC games, though. Also, what were you going to say? I don't think he is in the animated version. Isn't he? Has Wikipedia lied to me? It says, according to Bakshi, the character of Tom Bombadil was dropped because he didn't move the story along. Oh, the second draft of the screenplay included Tom Bombadil, but he didn't make it in. Tom Bombadil cut multiple times from Lord of the Rings screenplays. I w the way that like people get so butthurt about that, like I was expecting to just fall in love with Tom Bombadil in these chapters and be like, why isn't he in the movies? But instead I had the opposite effect where I was like, oh, thank God this character <laughs> is not present. Yeah. I mean, it would just be like a really different film. Yeah. Don't you think that the movies would kind of become a little bit more, like, harder to hold together with, like, the traditional Hollywood moral structure? Yeah, totally. I mean, it becomes much less of a straightforward hero's quest. Right. Yeah. So the, so the one, uh, the one really interesting comment, I think, in this thread about Tom Bombadil on Twitter is, 
Tom is useful in the books because he's why the Shire is able to be as peaceful as it is. He has kept the influence of Sauron out of the place for at least the Third Age. Hmm. Is I mean, is that known or is that a, a guess? I don't know if this is based on uh, on any kind of literature from the Tolkien universe. Hmm. Um, I mean, it's an interesting theory. It does seem like sort of Tom's domain is the Shire and everything east of the Shire up until Bree. And that's does it, it include the Shire though? Because I thought that like you know we had that whole description of the hedge that basically like right. keeps the trees of the old forest out of the Shire. Yeah, and I kind of saw those trees as his domain. I got the impression that it it isn't doesn't include the Shire, but I think you could make the argument that. As we talked about earlier, if the Witch King was the one who sent the Barrow Whites to the forest, that it is Tom's influence or Tom's power that keeps the Barrow Whites from just continuing to rampage. Because he clearly has the ability to sort of dominate or destroy them. And so I... I suppose you could argue that even if it's just on that count, he's forming some sort of barrier. And the forest itself, because it is sort of old and allowed to be powerful under his watch, is theoretically a barrier. Because it is notable. Like I thought it was really interesting that although there are plenty of threats during the chapters when the hobbits are in the forest, there's really no mention whatsoever of the Black Riders. And there's really no sort of reminder of that part of the threats against them. There's no element of pursuit. When they're in the forest, all of that stops. Yeah, but also the Black Riders totally did make it to the Shire. Like, they didn't... Right. They weren't stopped by Tom Bombadil. And, and he just also, went around the forest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. also Tom Bombadil, like, I think he just says at the end of the chapter that he doesn't, like, he can't really predict what they do and he has no power over them. Yeah. Well, potentially because they are going around the forest, which... You know, as far as, oh, he kept the Shire safe for the whole Third Age. I'm like, yeah, but also the counterpoint to, well, there's an argument to be made in favor of that is, what about the other three sides? (laughs) (laughs) What about the other ages? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but genuinely, it's like, okay, so the forest is big, but it's not so big that you couldn't theoretically go around it if you wanted to attack the Shire. I do like the idea that like that there's something between the Shire and the rest of Middle Earth that um, is not just like oh a wall or whatever that has kept evil out for a long time, but actually sort of a a, a, a power that is like very difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. I will say like the one thing I really appreciated from Tom Bombadil in this chapter was like finally someone just told them where to go. Like, yeah. after Gandalf and the elves, like, beat around the bush for, like, four chapters, we finally get Tom Bombadil just being like, oh, mm-hmm. go to this inn in Bree. You can stay there. Yeah, literally right here. Here are your cross streets. Yeah. I was like, yeah. thank you, Tom, for yeah. just putting them on a path and also saving us from another chapter of description of them being lost. <laughs> well, and I think that means we should 
take at least a couple minutes to talk about what happens when the hobbits reach Bree, which is that they find the prancing pony and they meet Barlamin Butterbur, who has possibly the best name in this entire series. I just love that so much. Um, and Better then than, uh, they fatty lumpkin. <laughs> uh, that's a close second. No, but um, and then they meet Strider, who I'm sorry. Can I just say the funniest thing to me was realizing that he actually introduces himself as Strider, but literally like three paragraphs before that, the innkeeper is like, "Oh, well, we call him Strider because he's got long legs and he walks really fast." And imagine being so determined to reject your original identity that you just shrug and go, yeah, I guess that's what I'm called now. <laughs> but also, he's he's basically in hiding, right? Like, he's half rejecting his identity, but also half, like, he is deliberately not wanting to reveal his status as the heir. Yeah. Because he, that would be dangerous. He's codenamed Strider. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think he does say he's a ranger, though. So if it's if it's known outside of Tom Bombadil's knowledge that the rangers are the men of Westerness, but not all of them are the heir of Isildur, right? Like he, they yeah. are all descendants of this kingdom of people, but he's the descendant of the actual king, right? But I think it's very different to say like, "Oh, I'm nobody, and I am one of a very small group of people, and one of those people." is the descendant of the king, but we're not going to tell you which of, like, the ten. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess. They, I think the implication is more like they don't even want to reveal that the descendant of the king is alive, right? He could have just died in, in the battles. Yeah. I mean, also the other thing I thought was interesting about Strider, though, is that clearly he has some other source of information because he knows who Frodo is and he knows he's got the ring. Let's not forget that we've learned in an earlier chapter that he knows Gandalf. Like, they are friends. So yeah. <laughs> so I feel like that's that's where you got the information from. Right, because Gandalf recruited him to go hunting Gollum with him. Yeah. That's true. I suppose for, he could have put it together from knowing about the ring and knowing who had it. Although also, like, this whole thing is like, oh, it's a top secret mission and Frodo spends most of chapter nine incredibly worried about, like, are people going to know? And, oh, you have to refer to me as Mr. Underhill. And then it's just like every other person that they have met on this trip so far knows who Frodo is, knows that he has the ring. Like, <laughs> it's just spies they are not. I did really quickly want to talk about um the the like so first of all i before we we got to this chapter i got the impression that the shire is like where all the hobbits are and they like keep to themselves and everyone else is an outsider and then we get this description of brie where like there are hobbits living there with right. men and it's just kind of like melting pot little yeah. area. And it feels like the, the description that we got of like how xenophobic hobbits are in general, like the reality is a little hazier than just like they all live in one place and don't let anyone else in. Um, but I did, 
I did really enjoy the description of Frodo meeting, or actually of all of them meeting like a bunch of other hobbits and they were all talking about like what their last names are and where they live and like they're like, oh, you're in Underhill, we're Underhills and all this stuff. And Ishani and I both picked up on... <laughs> so if you couldn't tell from our names, Ishani and I are both of South Asian descent, um, but we totally feel this way every time we go to any kind of like Indian gathering where it's just like, oh, you must know this person or like we gotta be related. And even the name thing, like at least in, in South India, a lot of people have the last name that is like the, the ancestral village that they're from. Yeah. So if you like meet somebody else with the same last name, it is incredibly likely that you are related to them. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought that was really cute. Yeah, there's definitely an element of having large families where you might be spread out and you maybe haven't met everybody that at any gathering you kind of shrug and go, yeah, sure, why not, cousin? And then like how like all he has to do is uh, say like, oh, I'm here working on a book about the history of hobbits in Brie <laughs> and all of the attention that could have been directed towards uh, his, like, mysterious background and exposed him as a, a carrier of the ring um, is immediately deflected because all the hobbits are like, oh, yeah, I've got something for your book. Yeah, until, like, one millisecond later when he and Pippin collectively ruin everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... You know, it was weird to me that it was... Frodo and Pippin, who really heck up in this chapter, because Mary, of all people, is quietly resting in their room like a grandpa, going, I might take in the fresh air, but I'm going to just hang out here. And then it's like, it's Frodo who really ends up getting himself in trouble. Yeah, I mean, Pippin, like, definitely starts it by telling a few too many stories, but yeah. Frodo is the one who definitely ruins it. But Stands on a table and starts singing. Yeah, first he's like, he's like, I'm Mr. Underhill, who definitely shouldn't draw attention to myself. Wait, Pippin is talking about something he shouldn't. What, how what should I do? Oh, draw attention to myself in the most ridiculous <laughs> way possible. Can we talk about the song that Frodo sings? I love this song. Uh Songs are starting to feel like the dreams to me where I'm just like, at first it was charming and now I'm just like, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> like, this one is really long. This one was interesting like on a metatextual level, right? Because it ends um, with a ping and a pong, the fiddle strings broke, the cow jumped over the moon, and the little dog laughed to see such fun, and the Saturday dish went off at a run with the silver Sunday spoon. Um, oh, and it's implied that Bilbo Baggins wrote this song. And, and is it implied that he wrote it, or just that it was one of his favorite songs? No, he. It says he wrote it. Yeah, it says Bilbo came up with this song. To me, this seemed like it, it seemed like uh, Tolkien intentionally puts this in as a way of bridging um, the the gap between Middle Earth and um, England, really, right? Because the implication is that this well-known nursery rhyme about the dish running away with the spoon was actually written. A long time ago by Bilbo Baggins. Yeah, it's kind of that intentional, like, bringing it into the familiar world. Yeah. Where it's just like, oh, like, yes, we, we are talking about fantasy, but also, are we? You know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. That, like, um, that you're supposed to... It's it's intentional that you feel this sort of, like, um, a, like a little bit of vertigo on the edge of, like, the world that you're in. You sort of feel like you're, you're reading a story about... Um, like, history that's been forgotten as opposed to things that didn't happen. 
I think that really fits with something you had commented on in an earlier episode, though, Wanda, this idea that Tolkien is curating all of this information as though he's sort of putting together artifacts for a museum. And there is that element of occasionally the narration will make reference to the fact that things are no longer the way that they used to be, or the hobbits are now very rare. There's actually a point where he says that, that the hobbits are no longer seen and known by men. So there is kind of this implication threaded throughout that Middle-earth is the world in which our narrator and the world in which it is assumed the reader is living, albeit many ages later. So I think this is another maybe piece of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a piece of the a piece of the curation that's been done. And also just like reminding I well, you know, Tolkien was trying to write a mythology for Britain, right? And mythology mm-hmm. often does the same kind of thing where it's just like taking place in a familiar world. True, but, like, yeah. Bringing other elements into it. True. I that's a really good point. It's it's like um it's like he's trying to explain, like, oh, here's why we have this thing that doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like, his starting point for, for Middle-earth is actually, here's a bunch of, like, cultural artifacts that we have in Britain that don't really make any sense. Why do we have the song about the spoon? Mm-hmm. Um, let's imagine that this was actually written a long time ago by this this old race that no longer exists. I mean, it, it's it's sort of the opposite of, like, a lot of science fiction, right? It's like, it's like yeah. speculative history. Yeah. yeah, which I actually really love the idea of that. I do really like the idea of speculative history as a genre and as a way of looking at certain kinds of fantasy, because not every fantasy novel is going to fit into that category. But I think that's definitely something that now I'm trying to think about if there are others that I know of that would fit that description. Is there any Ursula Le Guin writing that's like that? No. I haven't really read. I don't think so. Not that I've read. Not not that I have read. You're going to hate me, but I have to pee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And then we took a bathroom break. Now, back to the show. We got to talk about how hot Strider is, you guys. (laughs) Because... Oh my god, this text description is hot. <laughs> yeah, it is. I don't know. I, do you think it was do you think it was hot back when people were reading it for the first time? I don't know that I got the impression of hotness. Really? I feel like having a mysterious like tall hooded figure in the corner whose eyes are glinting like is always hot. <laughs> I got the impression of like He's meant to be compelling, but he's also sort of this intense, grimy weirdo who probably smells kind of bad. One of the funniest things about, like, just the general fandom of Aragorn and all of the associated, like, Twitter and Tumblr posts is that a thing that comes up all the time is, like, why is it hot that he's grimy? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he's hotter when he's grimy. Like. <laughs> Yeah, when he gets cleaned up, he doesn't look good anymore. Yeah, like, when he washes his hair, you're just like, why'd you do that? (laughs) He is very attractively dirt-smudged in the movies. Yeah. 
But I, I think even the concept of like a ranger who just like roams this land and has some kind of mysterious special abilities. Right. But we don't like this. He's so mysterious. Like even that is hot as a concept. I would agree. Definitely. And he has these long legs. <laughs> yeah. The long shanks. His long shanks. You know what they say about people with long shanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he has a big pipe. Oh my god. Well, and on that note, I don't even know that I want to do quick fire. I feel like I just want to stop you guys from talking. No, we just this episode needs to be over. Yeah. Yeah, we I, I don't think we I can. I think we've exhausted our topics. There's no need for quick fire. Yeah. Yep. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Ashani. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. Sorry, real quick, you guys. It's it's about to be over. Um... Alright. Leave this really long silence in the episode. (laughs) (laughs) And here is when Wanda scrolled through Twitter for five minutes.